In the early 20th century, cars began to rule the streets. Some of them were steam-powered, but that was far too noisy. There were even electric vehicles, but as they couldn't be powered outside of cities, they also failed to catch on. But there was another, stranger design. In the early 1920s, the Layout Helica was invented. It was also called the plane with no wings. In this car, the driver sits in the front with one passenger seated behind. The aerodynamic body of Layat Helica is structured similarly to a plane. It's mostly made from plywood, with a large propeller on the front to push the car forwards. The designer believed that all the added weight from normal car parts added unnecessary weight. At the time, steel was incredibly important for other uses, and the lightweight frame was his solution. Weighing about 550 pounds, this vehicle could reach speeds up to 106 miles per hour. That all sounds fantastic, but there was a serious downside. The car was incredibly noisy, and to protect their ears, people had to wear similar headwear as though they were in an actual plane. Not the best choice for a road trip, but surprisingly, 30 of these were sold. With a shortage of fuel in the 1940s, inventors were trying to find alternate forms of transport. The electric vehicles were looked at again after being left on the drawing board for the past 30 years. So, a brand new electric car, Lof Electric, was designed in 1938 and then built in 1942. It's a three-wheeled egg-shaped vehicle with room for only one passenger. This egg on wheels was powered by a battery pack. One full charge was enough for this little egg to travel up to 63 miles. It could ride along the roads at its top speed of 44 miles per hour. This tiny car was also quite lightweight, only about 770 pounds. I wish I had such a car today. It would squeeze into any parking spot. Yeah. Bonus, there were no blind spots in this car with a 270 degree view around it. But unfortunately, it didn't catch on and only one was ever made. German engineering has always been at a high standard with automobiles, and one model, the Amphicar, took them to another level. A car that could also be driven into the water and could function as a boat. While driving at modest speeds on the road, the wheels are slightly lower than normal, but once in the water, the front wheels work as rudders. It could sail at a speed of up to seven knots. The designers were aware that it wasn't the best boat or car, so they advertised it as the best boat driven on the road and the best car to sail on water. It was actually pretty decent as a seaworthy vessel. Many people were surprised that there were no leaks, even if left docked for several hours. It grew in popularity and almost 4,000 vehicles were sold in the 1960s. It even inspired several more models of boat cars in the automobile industry. Have you ever wanted to hire a limousine? What if the limo is crossed with a plane? One guy decided he wanted to combine his love for a 727 plane with the ability to drive it on the road. First, he found a plane. Then he removed the wings and the tail from the body and attached the plane's body to a Mercedes-Benz bus. So, it's kinda a regular bus in a plane's disguise. Stretched at 52 feet, it became the biggest limousine in the world. There's enough room for 40 people, 
but it can still drive at up to 124 miles per hour. The cockpit is mostly preserved. However, a steering wheel was replaced to drive the limo, for obvious reasons. The original folding staircase still works, making it a nice welcome to passengers while boarding the Boeing limo. Ooh. Surprisingly, it's registered to be driven on the road, and you can even rent this 24,000-pound limousine. At the beginning of the 20th century, car engines became a lot more efficient, and the availability of affordable gas helped automobiles really kick off. Back in 1927, car designers invented something really posh. Meet Bugatti Royale. It was the most luxurious car ever made. At 21 feet long and weighing 7,000 pounds, almost twice the average weight of a sedan built today. However, at the time of its creation, there was a great decline in the economies around the world. Unfortunately, this lavish car wasn't a success. Even the royalty of Europe had no interest in such an extravagant purchase. 25 had been planned to be made, but as interest faded, only three were sold. The production line ceased with only seven built in the end. The engine design was based on a French aircraft engine and is the largest ever built. But following the failure of the Bugatti Royale, the remaining engines were reused for newly built high-speed rail cars for the French railway system. In 1930, an inventor, John Archibald Purvis, created something he believed will be the high-speed vehicle of the future. He got his inspiration from designs made by Leonardo da Vinci. John felt that the brilliant man was onto something. He then created the Dynosphere, a mono-wheeled vehicle that ran on electricity. This 10-feet-high singular wheel, made from lattice iron and covered in leather, weighed around 1,000 pounds. The driver's seat and the motor are connected and mounted on wheels. At first, steering was only possible when the driver leaned to either side, but later, a steering wheel was implemented to make it easier. Do you know the feeling when you've been trying to solve one mystery for your entire life? Nope. Well, Detective Anderson does. During almost 30 years of working for the police, he solved many riddles, caught hundreds of robbers, and helped save thousands of lives. There's a huge number of successfully solved cases on his record. At the age of 25, he caught a thief who changed his own face with plastic surgery once a year. When Anderson was 30, prisoners started breaking from jails all over the world. The detective successfully solved this case. At the age of 38, he discovered the secret base of a forbidden order in a volcano's mouth. By his 50s, he managed to explain all the most inexplicable things in the world. But there was something he couldn't solve. These were two mysteries from the 50s, cases of missing planes. All these years, Anderson has been scrolling through the details of this puzzle. Unfortunately, he was too young when this story began. All he had were guesses and notes. But today, a sudden thought struck him. For the first time in many years, he felt that he could finally solve this mystery. But to do this, he had to immerse himself in this story again. So he opened the closet and pulled out two old magazines with detailed articles about these incidents. The first one happened in the summer of 1955. July 1st, Pan Am Flight 914 was about to depart from New York Airport with 61 people on board. The plane model was a Douglas DC-4. It differed from modern aircraft, having giant propellers instead of turbines. So all passengers fastened their seatbelts. 
the plane started taxiing down the runway, sped up, and took off. It went high into the sky and out of sight. Its destination was Florida. The flight time would be three hours. Dispatching services were watching the plane on their radar when suddenly, Pan Am 914 disappeared. The operator tried to contact the pilot but received no response. New York reported this to Florida. They said they couldn't see the plane either. Usually, pilots notify via radio if a plane crashes or gets into a storm. But this time, just nothing. After several unsuccessful attempts to establish the connection, they deployed large-scale search operations. Communication with the plane was interrupted when it was flying over the Atlantic Ocean. Therefore, the air company had to admit the aircraft crashed into the water. But this version had no proof. When planes fall that way, rescuers find floating debris. Some parts of the cabin or luggage always get to the surface. This time, rescuers found nothing. The plane didn't transmit any distress signals and didn't leave any traces of the crash. It seemed like it just disappeared into thin air. People forgot about this disaster for 37 years. And then, something bizarre happened. 1992, Venezuela, Caracas Airport. The control tower received a signal about an unknown aircraft approaching them. It was weird because it wasn't supposed to be there. There were no flights scheduled for that time. The plane was landing. The dispatcher and the rest of the airport staff understood that something was wrong here. The plane looked old, with huge propellers instead of turbines. After landing, the pilot contacted the airport. Where are we? The dispatcher asked him to identify himself. A few seconds later, he received an answer. We are Pan Am Flight 914, departed from New York to Florida, with a crew of four people and 57 passengers on board. The dispatcher didn't know what to do next. He and the airport staff understood what kind of plane they were looking at. What was this plane doing 37 years later, and almost 1,240 miles away from its destination? After a few seconds, the startled dispatcher turned on the microphone and said, It is September 9th, 1992. You know that? A long pause followed. Then, the pilot responded in a panic. Oh no. Jimmy, where are we? No! Stay away! Let's go now! The airport staff saw the pilot waving his hands in horror through the glass. Then, he started the engines and took the plane to the runway. Pan Am 914 increased its speed and took off. The dispatcher tried to stop him, but the pilot didn't respond. The plane disappeared into the sky, and no one else had heard of it since that day. Detective Anderson finished reading the article. He frowned and looked out the window. Raindrops were hitting the glass. The storm outside perfectly depicted what was happening in his mind at that moment. He seemed to know what had happened to that plane. All the clues were there, lying right in front of his eyes. But to know for sure, Anderson had to move on to the next case. It was another article, dated 1989. It happened in 1954. Santiago Airlines Flight 513 took off from West Germany Airport. The plane was due to land in Brazil in 18 hours. There were 88 passengers and four crew members on board. The plane hid behind the clouds and disappeared from all radar. Air traffic controllers were trying to contact the pilots, but didn't receive a response. 18 hours later, they called the airport in Brazil. 
those dispatchers couldn't confirm this plane's landing and couldn't contact the pilots either. The search operation lasted for several months, but they found nothing. Just like in the Pan Am 914 case, the plane disappeared from radar while flying over the Atlantic Ocean. Two years later, the search operation ended and Santiago Airlines ceased its activities. October 12, 1989. Airport controllers in Brazil noticed a passenger plane that suddenly appeared on their radar. It didn't answer the airport staff's questions and just circled over the airbase. After a few minutes, the plane landed and nothing. No one opened the ramp. Passengers didn't get out. Pilots didn't respond. The aircraft was in perfect condition. One of the dispatchers realized that this was the missing Santiago Airlines Flight 513 that had been considered lost for 35 years. The plane had been in the air for a mere 25 seconds when the pilots noticed weird noises and bizarre vibrations. They tried several ways to improve the situation, but nothing worked. The engine surges continued. And just over a minute into the flight, when the plane reached 3,000 feet, both engines failed. First the right one, two seconds later the left one. The pilots decided to return to the airport they had just left. At the same time, they tried to restart the engines. Nothing seemed to work. The flight crew made a decision to pitch the plane down and then level it off. Perhaps it could help them gain some speed for the glide. But soon, they realized they wouldn't make it to the airport. Was the plane going to crash? That's when the miracle at Gotrura occurred. The morning before the flight started as usual. Regular pre-flight procedures, good weather. The members of the flight crew were experienced pilots. A 44-year-old Danish captain with over 8,000 flight hours under his belt and a 34-year-old first officer from Sweden with 3,000 hours. So, what could go wrong? The plane itself was almost brand new. It was a McDonnell Douglas MD-81, nicknamed Dana Viking. It made its first flight on March 16, 1991. By that fateful day, the aircraft had been in service for a mere nine months. There were 122 passengers and seven crew members on board. Flight 751 Scandinavian Airlines was a scheduled flight from Stockholm, Sweden to Warsaw, Poland. On the way, the plane was supposed to make a stop in Copenhagen, Denmark. The aircraft took off from Stockholm according to its schedule at 8.47 a.m. local time. But by that point, the people inside had already been doomed, all because of a terrible sequence of events before the departure. It started the night before. The plane arrived at Stockholm Airport after a flight from Zurich. It was 10.09 p.m. The aircraft spent the night at the gate outside. It was cold. The temperature dropped to 34 degrees Fahrenheit, just above freezing. What made the situation even worse was that almost 6,000 pounds of freezing cold fuel, chilled during the night, still remained in the tanks located in the wings. The fuel was so cold because the plane had been flying at the cruising altitude, where the air temperature outside the cabin varied from minus 61 to minus 80 degrees. The flight from Zurich lasted around 1 hour and 40 minutes. Soon after midnight, a flight technician came to check on the aircraft. The man had to remove some slush from the landing gear, otherwise he wouldn't be able to examine it. At around 2 a.m., when he was leaving, he noticed some ice covering the upper part of the wings. 
By the morning, the situation had become even dire. A layer of clear, almost invisible ice had formed on the tops of the wings. The plane had to leave the gate at around 8.30 a.m. An hour before the departure, the mechanic responsible for the plane noticed that some ice covered the underside of the wings. He decided to make sure there was no ice on the tops of the wings. He climbed a ladder and put one knee on the wing. Then he bent forward to touch the front part of the wing. There was no ice, just some slush. The mechanic decided to make sure everything was fine with the air inlet of one of the engines. He didn't find anything abnormal. Soon after that, the personnel used more than 220 gallons of de-icing fuel to remove ice from the plane. The mechanic consulted with the captain of the aircraft and ordered the staff to de-ice the underside of the wings as well. After all, he had seen some ice there. But no one thought to double-check if there was clear ice on the tops of the wings. After they had finished the procedure, the mechanic reported to the captain, uh, We're done here. The icing finished. There was a lot of snow and ice, but everything's clear now. The captain thanked the mechanic and carried on with the pre-flight procedures. The plane taxied to the runway. Its engine's anti-ice systems were switched on and didn't show any malfunction. But several passengers later claimed they had seen ice sliding off the upper side of the wings while the plane had been taking off. And still, the plane left the ground and headed for Stockholm as usual. But shortly after the takeoff, several pieces of the overlooked ice broke off. At full speed, they slammed into the fans of the engines near the tail on both sides of the plane, ruining the blades. It led to a series of surges, and the rest is history. The Himalayas have some of the highest peaks in the world, including Mount Everest. But it's no surprise airplanes find it difficult to navigate the area. But why are commercial airplanes actually banned from flying there? For starters, these mountains have an average height of more than 20,000 feet. Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the entire world, stands at 29,037 feet high above sea level. The area is rough, filled with snow, and has almost no flat surfaces. In case of sudden cabin depressurization, it would be really difficult to perform an emergency landing since there's literally no flat area there. More so, the low oxygen environment at such an altitude means there's likely to be a lot of turbulence. Not only is it really unpleasant for passengers, but random air movements and high wind velocity means that it's really difficult to maneuver the airplane. This area is also quite low populated, so there's not much there in terms of radar systems. And radar is crucial for aviation safety. Without radars, pilots would be unable to communicate with the ground to figure out flight conditions. It can also get so cold up there that jet fuel might completely freeze. Sure, the fuels used in airplanes usually freeze at around negative 50 degrees Fahrenheit, but it may be possible above Everest. The lowest temperature was recorded there back in December 2004, when thermometers showed a staggering minus 44 degrees Fahrenheit. So, no wonder pilots don't want to ever take that risk, especially on a commercial flight. Among the few airports located in the Himalayas, there's one considered to be the most challenging to land in the world. Only eight pilots on the planet are certified to do it. It's called Paro International Airport, and it's located in Bhutan, a landlocked country in the eastern Himalayas. First, landing there is so dangerous because you're literally flying through some of the world's tallest mountain peaks. 
Not to mention that those eight pilots also have to consider strong winds. Despite the challenges, they do manage to safely land over 30,000 people each year. Moving further, there's no radar there to guide the pilots, so they need to maneuver the aircraft entirely in manual mode. The pilots need to track their movements based on specific visual landmark checkpoints as they approach the runway. Moreover, flights are only allowed there during daylight hours and under good visibility. These pilots also need to watch out for utility poles and roofs on the hillsides too. It means they often squeeze their planes between mountain peaks at 45 degree angles before dropping quickly onto the runway. No wonder only two airlines fly to Paro International Airport. Apart from these commercial pilots, there are specially trained helicopter rescue pilots who spend most of their career at 20,000 feet in the sky. Most of the time, they partner with equally experienced climbers who train by crossing the Kumbu Icefall. It's dubbed the most dangerous square mile on the planet. Made up of ice pillars as tall as a six-story building, this huge stretch of the glacier on Everest's western side is filled with bottomless ice holes. It takes between 4 to 12 hours to get from one edge of the icefall to the other, depending on the experience of the climber. You may think it's a pretty serene location since you're literally only surrounded by ice and snow, but these local professionals claim otherwise. One Everest veteran said that the noise was actually the worst part of the job. The mountain produces awful squeaking sounds and sometimes even sighs. It often makes people feel like it's talking to them, warning them about the treacherous environment. Mount Everest isn't the only no-fly zone in the world. Surprisingly, Disney parks are also part of this exclusive club. So you won't ever be able to look out of your plane window and see the beauty of fairy tale castles from up above. In recent years, a lot of crowded tourist attractions, including Disney parks, have increased their security measures to make sure their visitors are as safe as possible. As such, no aircraft is allowed to fly within 3,000 feet of Disneyland in California or Walt Disney World in Florida. It was initially a temporary ban, but this rule became permanent back in 2003. Some other places don't have planes flying over them because of their historical importance, like Machu Picchu, located in the Peruvian Andes Mountains. There's also a large number of rare wildlife species and plants that grow exclusively in this area. It's crucial that they're protected as well as possible. What does it have to do with planes not flying over that area? Firstly, it reduces the volume of harmful chemicals in the area. Secondly, if a plane ever needed to perform an emergency landing in this location, it'd cause irreversible damage to buildings and wildlife. Surprisingly, planes can fly over the Greek Parthenon in Athens, but with one condition, not to get closer than 5,000 feet above it. This way, the historical building is kept a bit more protected from any emergency landings, since there are specially designated areas around it. You won't be able to see the Taj Mahal from above either, since it's one of the most important, oldest, and most beautiful pieces of architecture in the world. It also needs added security features. That's it for today. So hey, if you pacified your curiosity, then give the video a like and share it with your friends. Or if you want more, just click on these videos and stay on the bright side.